Welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast, interdisciplinary conversations about new works in the broad world of business research. I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. If you like what you hear today, please consider subscribing to the podcast or sharing with others who might like it too. And if you have ideas for future episodes, let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Our guest today is David Hoffman, professor of law at the University of Pennsylvania Cary Law School. We'll be discussing his recent paper, Transactional Scripts and Contract Stacks, which he wrote with co-author Shannon Coney. I had a link to the article in the show notes for today's episode. Dave, welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Andrew. Dave, this paper is about a topic that has been pretty buzzy in the contract world and in the technology world as well, and that's smart contracts. Maybe introduce our listeners to the concept of smart contracts as you define them in the paper. How do these things work or how are they supposed to work? And what promise have some seen in them for how they might change the way that we contract with each other, the way that we reach agreements, the way that commerce works? One of the actual aims of the paper is to give the idea of smart contracts a little bit more of a coherent definition and a set of meets and bounds that make sense and help us to analyze it in a way that we can all sort of be on one page about. So traditionally, when people have talked about smart contracts, which is a you know, a term that is, as you say, become a little bit buzzy in the last couple of years. What they're thinking about is contracts that are digitized in some way and the performance of which are automated or self-executing. That's not exactly what we're trying to look at in our article. So in our article, we're looking at, you could think of a sort of a subtype of that big category, automated enforced uh, agreements. And the thing we're, we're particularly focused on is we call the transactional script. A transactional script is, is a persistent piece of software that resides on a public blockchain. And when it's executed as part of an exchange, the code effectuates basically a change to a ledger, often meaning that it changes the ownership of a crypto asset. So we are sort of focused on a narrow part of this big potential idea, the idea of automated uh, digitized exchange. The part that we're looking at is public blockchain coded exchanges. And the technical part of how they work is essentially, you know, on blockchains as sort of, I think lots of the folks who are listening to this podcast will be aware. Um, there are sets of rules that pre-exist that are sort of uh, persistent about how the blockchain creates changes to its own records. Those rules make it so it's difficult to change the record of past transactions, not impossible, but extremely difficult. And future changes are expensive. It's it, You have to pay basically a fee to submit at least the public blockchains like Ethereum, to submit proposed changes. The kinds of software that we're looking at, these transactional scripts, are relatively typically relatively short pieces of code that create the conditions under which the ledger is going to be modified or mutated. The promise that people see in that ecosystem is that you can pre-commit to what is going to be a set of answers downstream to what happens if particular logic if-thens occur. So if, you know, and this is just a, a hypothetical example, you know, if the weather looks like this on this day, then you get paid Y for Z delivery. And the promise that people see is that it enables you to sort of go forward without having a lot of trust in the counterparty. All of the execution is sort of internal to the system. 
And you don't necessarily need a third-party decision maker because you've coded in all the rules uh, internal to the operating system. And so people have proposed these scripts or even general ecosystem, the smart contracts, as a proposed solution for a whole wildly different and, and potentially exciting set of problems from, you know, from financial derivatives to insurance to consumer protection to corporate governance to tax filing to voting, supply chain management, you know, everything under the sun, you know, in the contracting sun could be potentially revolutionized if we had self-execution, um, if we didn't have the requirement to really trust your counterparty, and if we believe that we could get the software right. So the enthusiasts for these contracts would say these are self-executing. They remove the incompleteness that inheres in any contract that is traditionally done, that is traditionally drafted by a flesh and blood lawyer. That means that we have high trust. We don't have contract disputes. There's no need for judges, no litigation cost. You express some skepticism about that optimistic view. Why is that? And what do you think is more akin or aligned with reality? Yeah. So um, what we observe when we look at the current transactional script ecosystem is tremendous number, both as a sort of absolute number and as a rate of bugs. Uh, software errors in which the party's presumed or described intent does not match what they actually get when the script runs. And we ask ourselves, why are there so many errors? And the first answer is relatively obvious, and that software is error, error-filled, just like regular language is error-filled. It's extremely difficult to write software the first time without making mistakes, either mistakes literally in the syntax where it literally does not run, or you don't know what you don't know. You haven't really thought about the holes in the security system or the exploits that people could challenge the software with. And what's distinctive about this particular kind of software, unlike, for example, the operating system that uh, people use for their computers or, or a game or a word processing system is, it really has to be right the first time. So in a regular software development ecosystem or a regular software development firm, they iterate. They get it wrong and they send out version two. They get it wrong in version two, they send out version three and, and so forth. And we continue to get versions years after a software is deployed as new exploits are found. In the transactional script ecosystem, if you get it wrong and parties commit capital or assets to the script, it can be very hard to iterate a new version of the script. It's hard to change or unilaterally modify those contracts on the fly. Doing so sort of unwinds the exact trustless nature of the ecosystem that people find so attractive. And as a result, we see lots of errors. It's also true that the language which these scripts are coded in, which is called Solidity, at least on the Ethereum blockchain, is a little fussy. It's also quite a new language as the computing languages go, only a couple years old. And so people have not yet entirely shaken out all of the ways to do routine tasks. And finally, Finally, because there's so much money, money equivalents at stake, there's a lot of incentive for folks to try to find ways to hack these agreements. And so the paper goes through uh, a bunch of examples of essentially scripts that didn't work. And we think these are not, I mean, this is sort of a pun, these are features, like this is a feature of the ecosystem that you're going to have persistent errors, persistent gaps between what the folks wanted and what they got in coded exchange. And we're not sure how generalizable the finding is. Like if you had a smart contract that wasn't a transactional script, that is to say it wasn't on a blockchain, it wasn't on a public blockchain, would you have the same kinds of problems? My intuition is that software is buggy by design 
uh, or at least buggy, persistently so. And the law is going to have to confront the reality that it's just really hard to capture the party's intent ex ante in ways that are robust to exploits, attacks, and mistakes ex post. And so all of that leads us to believe that the optimism that people have sort of come to this really interesting new innovation in the commercial world that we all live in is a little bit unfounded and that what we ought to expect is that the laws are going to have to grapple with the sorts of problems that you know occur in ordinary contracting contexts, which is mistake, interpretive difficulty, and fraud, duress, misrepresentation, the other classic common law contract defenses and problems. Your skepticism is really around the reality, the stark reality that smart contracts, uh, transactional scripts suffer from some of the same problems as traditional contracts that are written by flesh and blood lawyers suffer from. When we have those issues with Traditional contracts, it's a common law process for sorting out the problems. But you note in the paper that there's really limited case law around how exactly those principles of contract law should be extended to this new kind of breed of transactional scripts. There is one case that you discuss pretty at length, the coin case. And I wonder if you can maybe introduce the listeners to uh, what the background of that case was, what happened, and maybe what does it teach us about this new world of transactional scripts and smart contracts? Yeah, coin case is really cool. And it's cool in part because it's so singular. There's just not a ton of examples of parties engaging in commercially significant transactions that essentially use computer programs to effectuate the exchange in which there's been a court opinion that broke down what the common law sort of results are, the common law framework that we ought to use. And so it's singular, it's interesting, and it's a little complicated. So I hope you'll bear with me as I kind of give you a sense of what the facts are, and then we can we can talk about it. Basically, COIN runs a, an exchange in Singapore, cryptocurrency exchange. It runs it on very old-fashioned principles. It has account books. It has control over those account books. It's not running those account books through some fancy decentralized mechanism. It, it is a fully centralized, old-fashioned exchange. The Counterparty, which is called B2C2, is a, I think a Scottish or a UK-centered entity that was created by a bunch of folks, including someone who'd worked at Goldman. Uh, while this person worked at Goldman several years before the events of this case, he had written a computer trading program. And the computer trading program was sort of asset non-specific. He actually didn't have in mind cryptocurrency at all because cryptocurrency, at least in his mind, had not been invented, or at least it was not particularly uh, well known. And like most arbitrage bots, you know, it's, it's scouring the world to try to find opportunities to trade at a profit. Making some of the details a little bit less detailed and, and sort of at the high level, one day, or actually one night, the prices at which coin is willing to sell the particular cryptocurrencies at issue come out of joint with the global market. And that's because of a series of negligent failures on the coin exchange itself. They have a problem with a bunch of collateral held by a counterparty. They haven't really reset the program that monitors the collateralized price sort of exchange. And so they're all of a sudden posting prices at which they are willing to buy and sell, which are something like 250 times the market. B2C2, the bot who's always monitoring the world for this exact kind of potential profit, trades, I think, seven or eight or nine times and makes a several million dollar proposed profit at night. 
in the morning, coins owners wake up, they look at this trade and they say, oh, geez, that's not, that's not good at all. And they, they reverse it. And they reverse it because they can and because they say, look, you know, this is obviously uh, out of whack with any commercial equilibrium. B2C2 sues coin saying, actually, look, your terms and conditions, the actual uh, quick I agree contract that we signed in order to get our bot to have access to your platform says all trades are final. And all trades are final means that all trades are final. You don't get to reverse them simply because they're no good for you. And coin has two defenses. The first one should be very familiar to people who've taken contract law. And they say, look, it's true that the terms and conditions say all trades are final. But on another part of our website, it said something like, if the market goes wonky or if the market goes sideways, we can unwind transactions. This is called the risk disclosure statement. Uh, so that's their first argument. The second argument is mistake. What they said is, look, if we had met last night at the trading floor on the bourse and you would propose to buy for 255, buy or sell for 250 times the, the market price and we had agreed, I think we all understand that would have been a mistaken agreement. Uh, that would have been a unilateral mistake, which would have discharged our obligation. So they make an, a unilateral and a bilateral uh, defense argument. It goes before the Singapore Commercial Court, which is an interesting new transnational forum that has consent both by, uh, I think, by assent and uh, some mandatory jurisdictional, like this particular case is by assent. Court says, with respect to the first argument, sort of the risk disclosure argument, they said that risk disclosure doesn't get incorporated in the terms and conditions because there was not sufficient notice of it. A very classic 1L contract question. With respect to the mistake argument, it's really interesting. So what the court says is, look, I, I, this is new. And the problem we have is that the B2C2 program was written years before the time that this exchange happened. And we can't go to the night in question if you're looking at a, at a machine that effectuates an agent's or a principal's will. You have to go back to the principal themselves and ask, at the time they wrote the program, what were they thinking? Did they have in mind this scenario and would they have known that trading on this scenario would have necessarily been the result of a counterparty error? And the court says, in this particular circumstance, taking in light lots of testimony by B2C2's programmer, yeah, it seems like it's a little exploitative, but he didn't necessarily have in mind when he wrote the program that the counterparty would have erred. He sort of was developing a hedging routine for himself where he was going to be protected against both upside and downside risk. And the particular trades that are executed happen to be ones that benefits him. But at the time he wrote the program, he couldn't have known for sure that the counterparty was in error. And so they deny, the court denies a coin's mistake argument. And when I read the case, I thought, you know, first of all, it's like a really cool, interesting case, which is now going to get included in my contracts case book. But I thought, here's a, like a nice example of how courts are going to struggle with the idea of software effectuating contracts. They're going to really pull from all of these old contract cases to try to find analogies. They're going to struggle trying to make sense of the new technology and to fit it into the old case law. And they're going to do so in ways that, you know, in some ways are appealing, but in some ways feel a little bit unprincipled. And the paper comes out of the intuition, let's try to provide a framework for courts going forward to understand the gap between code and contract. Even though COIN versus B2C2 itself is not a transactional script case, it is not a case about sort of automated 
or, or self-executing exchange. It is an example of software contracting, but you know, we're using it as a jumping off point for our analysis. So as you mentioned, you offer a framework in the article. Uh, you offer four canons uh, that should help address some of these questions around the contract stack, transactional scripts. What are these canons and how do they relate to traditional contract law interpretive practices? So we have four proposed canons. And our first one essentially says when courts look at the transactional script in context, what they should understand is that the script never stands alone. There are always some uh, semantic or natural language promises, agreements, formalized contracts, and less formalized statements that sort of surround that script in what we call a contract stack. And our first canon is you should try to make sense of that stack as a whole. You should try to read every part of the stack uh, as potentially legally operative. And so there's two moves there. The first one is the code counts as part of the contract stack, which is something that we think follows uh, for, for two reasons. One is that the actual people who engage in the practice of transactional scripts currently think they're engaging in contracts. So um, this effectuates their actual views about what they're doing. And the second is uh, on the other side, sort of like the less formalized communication side, when people put up a Medium post or a Reddit or a tweet that describes a transactional script, we think that that ought to count as potentially part of the promissory matrix to provide the grist for recovery. Uh, so that's the first canon. Everything counts as part of the stack. And our idea is, look, this is sort of how constitutional interpretation works. This is sort of how statutory interpretation works. Um, you sort of look at the document and you take in mind a lot of other stuff that's potentially relevant to meaning, some of which you might have legal rules that say, you know, statutory history doesn't matter, but maybe the public meaning of the statute's words at the time of the statute's enactment, maybe that does matter. So you've got sort of a, a thick stack of meaning that help you interpret the document. That's the first canon. Everything kind of gets thrown into the stack. The second is, to the extent that you can, you try to harmonize across the stack. So for example, if the script doesn't talk about a particular problem. And the example we have in mind here is the ICO tokens of 2017-2018, initial coin offerings in which the tokens basically were, as I found in some previous work, pretty vesticle. They didn't have a lot of information in them. But the marketing promises that surrounded those program, that those tokens, which basically were used to sell them, had lots of promises, sometimes about what the token said, sometimes about what the underlying asset class did. Our view is if the script says nothing, you still should treat the overall contract as creating promises. And our idea there is, look, some people might say the code is all that matters, and we, we reject that. Uh, our view is the whole stack should be the source of meaning. On the other hand, if the script creates some right that is not mentioned and is not disclaimed by the natural language promises, the script ought to also create uh, promissory intent. So scripts in some of those ICO cases created the right to modify the underlying agreement at will. And our view is a reasonably careful reader could have seen that ability to modify and therefore should be able to proceed on a contract based on that implied promise. Our third canon is 
sometimes the script and the underlying or the surrounding natural language promises are going to conflict. Uh, so the, the natural language promise says you can't do X and the script says you can do X. Or the natural language promises say uh, you can and the script says you can't. Our view is that natural language should be privileged over regular old software. And natural language in this case is going to include code commentary. So, you know, most code that is committed to these transactional scripts contains commentary by the programmers. The programmers are describing what they're doing. They fix that commentary contemporaneous as they write the, the software itself or the code itself. And our view is that the natural language descriptions should matter. And so, you know, you know, for example, we have an uh, example in one of our case studies, a decentralized exchange in which the parties had mistakenly entered into certain deals. They're called fat-fingered traders. They basically pushed the wrong button and you know, committed too much currency or at the wrong price. If you looked at the code commentary, and, and there's no natural language uh, about what should happen under these circumstances. If you look at the code commentary, it says in the code commentary, we validate your trades. Now, one way to read validate is a pretty technical understanding of validate, which would essentially be, you know, we're making sure that the thing that you said you're doing is what you're doing. Another word would be a sort of a more general or um, non-computing based understanding of validate, which is we make sure that you accurately captured your own intent. And we think it should be a litigable question whether that code commentary, which seems to provide the grist for a, a potential defense to obligation, uh, in fact, does. We would then ask, you know, what should we validate mean? Even though the code provides no protections, the natural language does. So that's our third. And then finally, we have a fourth, which is sometimes and increasingly parties are trying to integrate their scripted contracts. They're trying to use natural language terms and conditions to say the code doesn't matter at all or the reverse. They say the code is all that matters. And our view is courts ought to be very skeptical about attempts to parcel out which part of the stack count. And the reason sort of should be obvious from offline examples, if a contract contains an appendix and the appendix has lots of important information about what the parties are agreeing to, it really would be kind of nonsensical to, for the part of the contract that refers to the appendix to also say, look, this appendix doesn't count at all for the purposes of figuring out what's agreed to. The appendix provides the actual foundation for the agreement. It provides meaning. Now, what the parties might do, and we think that they ought to be able to do, is to define what particular terms mean uh, within the natural language and have those definitions be really important for what the court later determines are the meanings of the relevant terms. Uh, so those are our four canons. Everything counts. Harmonize if you can. If you can't harmonize natural language over code and be skeptical about attempts to be highly formal in this ecosystem. And I, I guess sort of I would close by saying, you know, or close this part by saying what we sort of look at here is a very immature commercial ecosystem. It's immature in part because it's very small, you know, maybe several billion dollars of total trades occurring on transactional scripts uh, in any given period. That's trivially small, uh, although it's expanding rapidly. And it also is underlawyered. So most of the projects that we observe, even ones in which there's several hundred millions of dollars of trades occurring, have almost none of the sort of the accoutrements like the regular terms and conditions or the well-lawyered risk disclosures that we would expect in regular offline contexts. And because that's true, the kinds of techniques and tools that courts usually use 
in contract cases, formalism particularly, real deference to written language, real unwillingness to look beyond the borders of the contract, we think lack some of the foundations that really are necessary. And what we are worried about is not giving effect to the party's very settled expectations, because we don't think they have very settled expectations, but rather trying to prevent opportunism. And the the big thing that we're pushing against is what we see as a move in the literature, which is caveat code reader, that there is a sense that some people have that because this is an ecosystem where you can read the code, so it's not like you can't read it, you could read it if you wanted to, you should be held to everything it says. And our view is, yeah, but you should be held to everything that's said. You should be able to contextualize the code within the stack of meaning that surrounds it. And in that way, hopefully, depress the likelihood for opportunistic programmers to sort of lie in wait and fool folks uh, out of their money. If the Singapore court in the coin case had these canons, how would they be applied? And would anything change in how the court came out in terms of its judgment or its reasoning? It's a great it's a great question. Been, I've been thinking about it a bunch. So I think my first intuition is that if this, if the Singapore court had in front of it a transactional script project, so that the code was available to both parties, which is not true in the particular case, as I understand it, and that both parties had the ability at the same time to see the code commentary. I guess I'd first say it's not so obvious to me that those risk disclosures should not have been incorporated into the meaning of the contract. Second, it's not so obvious to me that the intent that matters is the intent that of the programmer back in time when they originally entered into the deal. What it strikes me, or when they when he originally wrote the program, what we should be looking at is the intent of the programmer when the program was linked into the coin operating system. That it's not when the machine's made in general terms, but rather when the machine is yoked to a commercial exchange that we care about. And so I'm not sure that that changes the result. I do think it, like on the margin, makes the arguments for coin a little stronger. I don't love the flavor of the opinion in which there's a sense like coin's a big boy and it could handle itself going forward. I don't think that makes great law. And I, I really am not sure, I guess I'd say like, but I'm not sure what would happen if this was not really an offline project and instead we had a real transactional script operate on a blockchain. Dave, what key takeaways would you like listeners to have from this paper and from this conversation? The first is that we believe that the sorts of problems that we see in the case studies in our paper are likely to recur with increasing frequency in the future. And the sorts of problems that we see are essentially software code that does not track what the parties would have said they wanted at the time they entered into the exchange. And the result of that gap is going to be, we think, litigation, whether the litigation occurs in national courts, in arbitral uh, forums, or in transnational one-off court systems. And when courts or arbitrators face these sorts of problems, what we think is going to happen is they're going to use old-fashioned contract principles. And the paper tries to bring those old-fashioned contract principles to bear on this sort of seemingly new set of 
problems in ways that we think don't do any violence to the old set of principles, but rather uh, bring them forward in time and provide a way to, we think, civilize sort of a bit of a Wild West technological ecosystem. The one question we've gotten about the paper, or I've gotten about the paper a bunch, is, you know, it, you know, what's new here? Is this sort of just like, you know, the internet all over again, where you've got seemingly a new set of problems? And I, I think there's real fairness to that critique. You know, we don't think that the sorts of problems transactional scripts create are that new. But what we do think, we hope, is what contract scholars have been sort of in the last couple of years when they've been writing about it, as if they're writing about a totally impenetrable and impossible to understand phenomenon, which has magical properties. It's never going to go wrong. Everyone's going to get exactly what they wanted. And the result's going to be the end of contract law. We think that that's just too optimistic about what these things are going to look like in practice as they get deployed at scale. So the takeaway is, just like every other regime of law, what we should expect is failure. We should expect the parties to fail to come to real agreement about what they really want. We should expect they're going to be unable to reduce that agreement to language that really captures their meaning. And the courts, when they confront those double-barreled failures, are going to have to solve problems. And uh, we think that the paper offers them a path forward on that, how to fix the gap. Our guest today has been David Hoffman professor of law at the University of Pennsylvania Carey Law School. We've discussed his recent paper, Transactional Scripts and Contract Stacks, which is co-authored with Shannon Coney. I'll link to the article in the show notes for today's episode. Dave, thank you for joining the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thank you, Andrew. It was really a pleasure. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Business Scholarship Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing to the podcast or leaving a rating on your favorite podcast app, or let other people know about it too. If you have suggestions for future episodes, please let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Until the next time, I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. Andrew Jennings.